You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning everybody, Annie here for Solidarity Breakfast on your community radio station 3CR. And this morning we've got lots of things to uh, talk about. Uh First up, we're going to uh, hear about the upcoming Palestinian Film Festival, which, uh, as I said, it's upcoming, November 3rd to the 6th. And uh, you might be aware that Israel has intensified its violence against Palestinians in the occupied West Bank and East Jerusalem just over the last week. Uh, They've uh, increased uh, bureaucratic procedures around uh, um, the ability to go in and out to such a degree that uh, it's uh, crippling people's ability to actually interact with family and to actually have any free movement at all. It's uh, more, it's, uh, it's become... Sort of almost like an end game kind of thing. Israel has arrested over 1,500 Palestinians uh, over this year, increasing its attack on human rights defenders and accelerated its use of administrative detention, imprisoning 800 Palestinians illegally without charge or trial. The number, the highest number in over a decade. And um, following uh, using culture using uh, things like the Palestinian Film Festival, which is going to be on in Melbourne and around the country, is a fascinating insight into the lives of uh, and thoughts of uh, people who are uh, Palestinian, uh, past, present and uh, future thoughts. Uh, so uh, I, I, I've watched a couple of these films and they're just extraordinary films. And so we get to talk to Nasser Shaktour about the, this collection of films. Uh, n- never to be forgotten this uh, 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 injustice uh, that blights uh, the um, human history. Um, we're going to go on to talk to uh, Daniel Thompson from about the deeming protectors. <clears throat> you may or may not be aware, but uh, there's this massive uh, move to develop uh, a section of uh, in, in near Brisbane this uh, enormous area of um, a valley, <coughs> which uh, previously was a rural. Um, it, the Ripley Valley uh, Priority Development Area it was proclaimed by the Queensland Government as one of the largest urban growth areas in Australia. And uh, in 2014, 
the 4,680 hectare Ripley Valley was home to 400 people living on rural uh, land holdings. The scheme, the new scheme, aims to develop up to 50,000 homes for 120,000 people. But the problem is that uh, it is right, uh, riding roughshod over uh, the uh, the land rights and uh, cultural sensitivities of local uh, Indigenous peoples. Uh, it used to be the site of a um, reserve called the Deembing Reserve, and it's also a massacre site. Anyway, we're going to... Th- this brings together a whole range of issues, uh, lands right, land rights, uh, cultural heritage, and uh, glossing over you know, this uh, idea of voice to parliament without truth enshrined. Uh, not not a favourite topic for many people who'd like to uh, tie this all up in a nice bow, but uh, this this particular issue at Deeming uh, uh, Flats is... Uh, Deeming Creek is... Uh, is in the process of exposing... Uh, the uh, terrible sore that is the uh, remains of uh, colonialisation in this country. So we're going to see if we can find out more about it from Daniel Thompson. Uh, this is the week that was, is going to be here. And uh, Donald Sutherland is he's going to talk to us about the uh, interaction of the budget, the Reserve Bank and annual wage review. These are the knotty issues uh, that uh, have been uh, at the heart of uh, the so-called levers uh, of uh, government to uh, rein in inflation, you know, suppress wages, uh, get the Reserve Bank to increase uh, interest rates and uh, then perhaps the annual wage review will save the failing working class well, the working class who are, you know, being deluged and drowned by debt and uh, other unpleasant realities of modern life. Uh, That's uh, what we're going to do on Solidarity Breakfast this morning. But before we do, let's hear something from our wonderful community out there. Australia's most iconic bike riding holiday, the Great Vic Bike Ride, is on from Saturday 26th of November to Sunday 4th of December. This rolling bike festival will have you pedalling along the beautiful Great Ocean Road, through the Otways and Golden Plains. Tickets include all meals, a camping spot, luggage transfers, daily entertainment and more. Sign up at www.greatvic.com.au Use promo code 3CR to get 10% off. Great Vic Bike Ride, a 3CR supporter. You're with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast on your community radio station, 3CR. You might have heard that um, David McBride, the whistleblower who... uh, broke uh, the news that uh, Australian uh, soldiers were um, committing uh, war crimes in uh, Afghanistan. Uh, His trial, yesterday, it was decided uh, 
that um, instead of protecting him under the uh, whistleblower protection laws uh, and uh, allowing his uh, defence team to uh, present his case at the ACTU uh, hearing yesterday, uh, that um, it was uh, suppressed. The government... uh, suppressed it, uh, calling it uh, necessary for national security, um, <coughs> that uh, he, he sh- the, this information shouldn't be made um, uh, available. So, uh, so Australia's broken whistleblower protection laws, according to GetUp, failed him. David McBride condemning him to a full criminal trial for exposing alleged war crimes in Afghanistan. So... That's the next stage for uh, David McBride. And uh, he's not alone. Whistleblower Richard Boyle, uh, the man from uh, who exposed the tax officer's uh, um, aggressive and potentially illegal behaviour towards uh, taxpayers, um, is currently awaiting the outcome of his own defence under the Public Interest Disclosure Act with the decision set to be handed down by a South Australian judge in the coming weeks. If it fails, he faces 161 years in prison for revealing unethical practices within the Australian tax office. So uh, watch this space. These are terribly important issues that are going on at the moment. Uh, this is uh, came out of uh, MELS, the Melbourne Activist Legal uh, people, fantastic people who do fantastic work. Uh, they've just alerted uh, people that uh, there is an alarming, preemptive, and intimidatory police operation currently underway across four Australian states and territories. This was released yesterday. Strike Force Guard Three is the name of a disturbing New South Wales police operation that has involved coordinated visits by Victoria Police, Queensland, ACT and New South Wales Police to the homes of climate activists across the country. Labelled by police as Persons of Interest, POI, at least 15 activists from a range of groups and networks have received unannounced visits to their homes at various times of the day or night. People have been questioned about past and potential protest activities, threatened with arrest and charges and asked to divulge information about other people or protest plans. Some have been visited multiple times, asked to come to the station. Further accounts and reports of these visits are still being received by local human rights agencies. It is understood that Operation Strike Force Guard 3 is designed to gather intelligence and to deter people from attending protests at the International Mining and Resources Conference, IMAC, which is being held across three days at the ICC Sydney from the 2nd to the 4th of November. 
Although coordinated by the New South Wales Police, it is not known to what extent Victorian Police are cooperating with or supporting Strike Force Guard 3. Police attempt to justify these activities, claiming they are being, in inverted commas, community safety, uh, about community safety and providing information. In reality, these intimidating home visits are an unacceptable form of political policing that undermines civic and human rights. They are preemptive attempts to silence public participation in protests. Now, if anybody is actually affected directly by this, uh, Mel's is, uh, is, uh, has put up um, a whole range of resources for you. Uh, you should go to their website, uh, Melbourne Activist Legal one word, .org.au, and you will find the information. It's the latest release. It's got uh, a whole range of uh, things that uh, may su- help you uh, get through this tough time. MelbourneActivistLegal.org.au. You're on Community Radio with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast. Hi, my name is Bundalini, also known as Robbie Thorpe. I want to invite you to the 2022 Beyond the Bars CD launch on Thursday the 10th of November at Arnie Elmer Thorpe's Gathering Place, Dadi Munwaro, 546 to 550 High Street, Preston. There will be a panel discussion on First Nations incarceration and justice, some live music with Amos Roach and free copies of this year's Beyond the Bars CD. Thursday, the 10th of November, Arnie Alma Thorpe's Gathering Place, Daddy Munmaro, 6 to 8 pm. For more information, head to our website, 3cr.org.au backslash beyond the bars. You're with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast and uh, I caught up with uh, the Palestinian Film Festival director, Nasir Shatur, who uh, is the um, convener of the 11th Palestinian Film Festival. Uh, The collection of films that I've seen are just magnificent, magnificent films and uh, worth uh, your... uh, um, going out and buying tickets to any of them, as far as I can make out, November the 3rd to November the 6th at Nova. So let's hear what uh, Nassim have to, had to say. Uh, fascinating stuff. Thank you very much for uh, spending some time with me talking about this year's Palestinian Film Festival. Tell me, how did you become involved in um, uh, being uh, part of the Palestinian uh, film festival this year. This is the eleventh. Uh, so tell me about your role. Yeah, well, actually, uh, I um, I had the opportunity to start that to be one of the founders of uh, uh, the festival. In fact, the festival is a production of cultural media as a uh, um, a, a non-for-profit cross-cultural uh, organization promoting um, Arabic uh, literature and Arabic. Um, 
in in Australia. Um, the, we started 11, sort of, you know, 2007. Actually, this is the 11th edition, but we missed a few years because of COVID and 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 um, over over the years. And um, yeah, we started it as one-off event, and obviously it had a lot of a lot of um, engagement with the com- from the community and a lot of impact. And we've been asked by the community to keep doing it, and hence, you know, we are. You know, in the 11th edition, and we're still doing it, and expanded the program, and we expanded the cities uh, from uh, Sydney to Sydney and Melbourne and Adelaide, and then now we are almost national, except Northern Territories. Hopefully, soon we'll go to the Northern Territories. Um, yeah, and or, or, or there is also some demand to go actually regional, but we're still a small organization. We're still a small festival, a niche festival, um, with a, a unique uh, program. And um, yeah, while we have we have a lot of demand on our content, we don't have uh, the means to to expand the way our community or or our audience would like us to expand. Now, uh, there's been a lot of uh, international um, heavyweight negative uh, attacks on the Palestinian people. And uh, there's a lot of money behind um, espousing um, the Zionist cause, I'll have to say. Um, And so, of course, having a film festival is all about building intercultural understanding and promoting Palestinian life uh, and changing the message, isn't it? Yeah, and let's go. Let's. Um, I guess let's let's go back to some basics. Uh, the, um, the the purpose of the festival is to create a platform to put forward the Palestinian narrative, as per the Palestinian filmmakers and and and, and, and storytellers. Uh, so and and also uh, Palestine over history uh, over the the history of the last seventy years has been denied as an identity and as a culture and as as people, so the film, you know, the film industry or the film, the, uh, the film festival, if you like, uh, it creates that virtual state or virtual identity, a realistic identity, and it has a lot of impact on the community. One reframes that identity through through films and and, and culture, and um, also um, uh, um, emphasizes the memory uh, that we we hold. Uh, close to our heart and our mind, and also uh, allows us to imagine the future. Um, while we're doing that, we engage in the wider community, uh, the Australian community uh, in general, uh, with all of its aspects. Our audiences are mixed, totally mixed, from uh, the left politics to the right, uh, the right of politics, uh, from uh, the, the, the extreme religious to the atheist. We have a really, from young to old, you know, we had, you know, um, a truly mixed audiences. And so uh, while we, you know, uh, our our mission is to create that space for the Palestinian narrative and Palestinian storytellers, you know, that's that's really our mission. While, while what's, and allowing Australians to see Palestine outside the political uh, uh, news, news article. Uh, from a, as a news as a news item or from a, uh, from the uh, a, a prism of the news, it's 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 it's, it's showcasing Palestine 
with all its beauty and, and, and faults as uh, we are normal. We are, we are a normal people like every other people have aspirations, they have disappointments. And um, yeah, we have challenges. We have an occupation and we have to, to liberate ourselves from that occupation. And films is, is one of the tools uh, to, 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 you know, to say our story. And, well, you know, well, to the yeah, world. And the, but the films are just so fantastic. I mean, I've only I've only seen uh, three of the films, uh, and they mm-hmm. not only are they diverse, but they're absolutely gripping, absolutely gripping films. The films, mm. the first one that you that you're going to show on opening night is called uh, Farah, and it's mm-hmm. a story from a person's real life, and it takes us straight back to 1948 uh, at the, uh, and the, and the Nakba. And it, it's the most unbelievable personal story, but it's so beautifully rendered. Mm. Yes, yes. Uh, yes, it's a beautiful story. And this is the story that uh, it, it's emerging. In, in, uh, as you know, uh, you know, uh, Good art doesn't come from a happy place most of the time, mm. uh, and uh, the Palestinian uh, industry and and the Palestinian film industry is not necessarily from Palestine. I mean that film Farha is actually a Jordanian production, yeah. and Jordan Oscar nominee for uh, 23. So uh, uh, and you know and as you would know, um, the film industry is a collaboration and uh, between multiple countries or multiple companies or multiple, uh, um, you know, uh, there's a lot of input uh, into, into that. So, uh, however, the story is about Palestine in that particular film. And it's a lot of community to, to deal with this intergenerational trauma because of the Nakba. It allows us to see what has happened and how the person has dealt with it. I mean, not necessarily resolved it, and you can't resolve it when something is broken, but you have to sort of repair yourself and repair the community and repair the nation and go forward. And that, that's sort of what film is trying to do. Uh, actually, uh, you brought up a couple of things. Uh, uh, the fact that there's collaborations, a lot of collaborations, uh, uh, um, partnerships in the making of the films, mm-hmm. uh, but also that film in particular, Farhad, is really interesting because it's told from a story that someone told that was their life, that was part of their life story and it's being remembered. And because it's now, as you said, 70 years, uh, it's fascinating to uh, see how language and art and film passes on culture. Yes. Yes, uh, and something interesting about that film that the director is very young. Uh, um, yeah, or the, the, the main actress also is very young. And the story, the true story about a young, uh, a young girl. Uh, so you have a newer generation, a third or fourth generation, uh, coming uh, to terms with the Nakba and producing art and story uh, about the Nakba. And, you know, and... and uh, as, as you mentioned, it's an award-winning uh, film. It uh, is really fascinating, that film in particular, but also the other films I saw are fascinating for the interiors of the, the houses and the clothes that people wear. And, I mean, it's not like we're we're watching people in a, um, like, animals in a zoo. We're watching people alive 
in their landscapes, in their lives, in their clothing, uh, in a way that is quite uh, fabulous, I think. I, I, I found that really, really wonderful. Yeah, I, I think I think the director and, and her team did a, a, a wonderful job in presenting uh, the scene as it was. They went back to 1948 with a true presentation of what you know how people lived and and that particular village. I mean, obviously that wasn't a city; that was a village where the story took place. It did not try to over dramatize the story or under dramatize it. We were not trying to play the victim. For instance, it was such a true, slowly narrated story to this truth and its its value, and I think that was because it was genuine. It was true, you know that the story, the, the film was very very successful. Yeah, vivid, really vivid. And um, then then the other film I saw was uh, Who Does Stallone, which is an absolutely. Um, uh, unbelievable dissection of how patriarchy undermines a society in struggle. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, Hani Abu Asad, the director of Huda Salam, obviously the director of other award-winning films such as Omar and Paradise Now, um, he always tried to bring in the contradictions within the community uh, in Palestine um, and on the backdrop of the occupation. So uh, it's not only the occupation who um, who's um, the Palestinian faced with. They, they have their own, you know, uh, internal uh, uh, problems and struggles that they have to also overcome. Uh, patriarchal issues, uh, for instance, women's rights and freedom in general and, and, and democracy. Um, that all um, underpinned by by uh, the occupation because occupation is like you know the the, the, top of the, the tip of the iceberg which which filters down through the, the whole artery of, of, of the society. Um, but that film was also based on on and true events, uh, not necessarily true story, true events. Uh, um, and it, 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 because it's, you know, because it's sort of true and it um, allows a, a woman in a society where she's against the wall, uh, she doesn't have a lot of options. Um, so, yeah, it's quite gripping and it's quite an interesting film. Isn't it? It's not to everyone's liking, but... It's very brave. Uh, that's one of the things that struck me about... Uh... Perhaps uh, uh, people who, one, have such incredible filmmaking and storytelling skills, like these are very complex films and beautifully made and amazing actors, just absolutely fantastic acting and writing, um, so very high-level filmmaking uh, and under siege, uh, having to deal with such terribly brutal facts it translate. It appears to translate into the movies where they're incredibly brave filmmakers. Like that's an incredibly brave film to make. Mm. Yes, yeah. it is a brave, but being brave also, uh, you know, attracts criticism. And uh, that film did attract uh, a fair level of criticism uh, from the Palestinian community. Well, um, they would. They think you know, that. So, yeah. yeah. 
yeah, uh, and they they consulted, they they you know they denied it. They, yeah, but that comes you know part of parcel of of, of of having a vibrant society. Yes, that's what's so powerful about it. It's amazing. What a great festival! And the next one that I saw, which is sort of a a um a, a, a different type of film, uh, sort of a dark comedy, really. Uh, Mediterranean, uh, Mediterranean fever. That is an extraordinary film. Yeah, it's um, yeah, it's uh, it's it's a different it's a different genre. Uh, and uh, Mahal Hajj, uh, the director, she is really gifted. Uh, that that's her second uh, feature film, and it won it won uh, awards at Cannes Film Festival and was debuted at the Cannes Film Festival uh, last year. Um, and uh, we are happy to present this festival uh, this film at our program this year. Um, that that film sort of um, you know um, takes a Palestinian issue into another level into you know how on the, even when you have a normal life you still don't have a normal life <laughs> because of you know and you got everything you know you have a job and you have a family and and you're living in a in in a, in a contained way you still have the issues of the occupation the issues of of, of trauma and and, and history. And lived experience, and you, how you deal with it, and how how um, um, it transacts into your also family and neighborhood and what have you. So it's a quite interesting film. I guess um, quite sophisticated in in, in some level for films. I mean, some of the feedback I, I got on this film is like, oh, you know, is it really a Palestinian film? And then that comes to the you know takes us to the question, what's a Palestinian film? How can you define a Palestinian film? Um, is it has to be like a war top film? Can it be, you know, can it be, uh, you know, artistic film? Yeah. Can, can it be an abstract? Can it be a poetic film? Um, yeah. And 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 again, we we put again in a in a in a pigeonhole like, ah, oh, this is Palestinian film. Oh no, this is not a Palestinian. Or sometimes they tell you this is not Palestinian enough. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I love the fact that we went down to uh, uh, Lake Galilee, you know, like all these locations uh, in a part of a domestic world uh, that they live in, which have come, you know, from a Christian background, it's all this, uh, the Bible landscapes, but we're taken there in a completely different context. I love that. It's just fantastic. It's good for us to see it this way. And I must say, I always fancied Chekhov myself, but that quote about uh, I couldn't make up my mind if I'll have a cup of tea or commit suicide was just probably underlies this entire film. Very dark. Yes. But very yes, comic. Yes. Yeah, very dark. But uh, yeah, and, and when, 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 life, when life and death blur in society because you, are, you, you live in a very confined space, uh, and when an artist takes that and makes it a film or makes part of a film as an input from a film, it's a quite powerful. Yeah, very powerful. I, I haven't seen any of the others, but uh, it sounds to me that, I mean, I know that there's a documentary as well. And uh, and anyway, there's it's a small but uh, perfectly uh a defined festival running from Thursday the 3rd of November to Sunday the 6th of November. How many films are there? Because those three are just a knockout. And then we are screening seven films and, and hopefully after the festival 
uh, we might be able to have additional films if it depends how we go with that. Uh, we have a lot of materials because, you know, because of COVID, we didn't screen for the last two years. We have a lot of materials, but obviously we need to make sure, you know, we are able to run them and in a way that our community and the audience is able to actually participate. Well, it's incredibly illuminating on Palestinian life and artistic expression. But if you're just a film maker or a film buff, these films are just so out of this world. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. Mm. Great job. Trans Family is a not-for-profit organization providing a peer support group for loved ones, including parents, siblings, extended family, and friends of a trans and gender diverse person. Trans Family runs discussion groups in person and online. We offer a safe space to share your experiences, ask any questions regarding your situation, and provide peer support. We are especially keen to hear from loved ones in regional and rural Victoria. Donations to Trans Family are tax deductible. For more information, visit transfamily.org.au or look for us on Facebook. Trans Family is a 3CR supporter. If you or someone you care for is struggling with a mental illness or other disability and you need someone to talk to, you can call the Wellways Helpline. Wellways Helpline is a volunteer support and referral service that provides information to people experiencing mental health issues or other disabilities, as well as their family, friends and carers. We're here to talk if you are feeling socially isolated, seeking information about mental health or mental health services, or just need someone to talk to. As a peer-based service, everyone working at Wellways Helpline has a lived experience of mental health issues or disability. Wellways Helpline is a national service and operates Monday to Friday, 9am to 9pm, excluding public holidays. So if you're struggling yourself or are struggling to help someone else, please call Wellways Helpline on 1300 111 500. That's 1300 111 500. Wellways supports 3CR. You will not be able to stay home, brother. You will not be able to plug in, turn on, and cop out. You will not be able to lose yourself on Skag and skip out for beer during commercials because the revolution will not be televised. The revolution will not be televised. The revolution will not be brought to you by Xerox in four parts without commercial interruptions. The revolution will not show you pictures of Nixon blowing a bugle and leading a charge by John Mitchell, General Abrams, and Spiro Agnew to eat hog moths confiscated from a Harlem sanctuary. The revolution will not be televised. The revolution will not be brought to you by the Schaefer Award Theater and will not star Natalie Woods and Steve McQueen or Bullwinkle and Julia. The revolution will not give your mouth sex appeal. The revolution will not get rid of the nub. The revolution will not make you look five pounds thinner because the revolution will not be televised, brother. 
There will be no pictures of you and Willie Mae pushing that shopping cart down the block on the dead run or trying to slide that color TV into a stolen ambulance. NBC will not be able to predict the winner at 8.32 on report from 29 districts. The revolution will not be televised. There will be no pictures of pigs shooting down brothers on the instant replay. There will be no pictures of pigs shooting down brothers on the instant replay. There will be no pictures of Whitney Young being run out of Harlem on the rail with a brand new process. There will be no slow motion or still lights of Roy Wilkins strolling through Watts in a red, black, and green liberation jumpsuit that he has been saving for just the proper occasion. Green Acres, Beverly Hillbillies, and Hooterville Junction will no longer be so damn relevant, and women will not care if Dick finally got down with Jane on Search for Tomorrow because black people will be in the street looking for a brighter day. The revolution will not be televised. There will be no highlights on the 11 o'clock news and no pictures of Harry R. Women Liberationist and Jackie Onassis blowing her nose. The theme song will not be written by Jim Webb or Francis Scott Keyes, nor sung by Glenn Campbell, Tom Jones, Johnny Cash, Engelbert Humperdinck, or The Rare Earth. The revolution will not be televised. The revolution will not be right back after a message about a white tornado, white lightning, or white people. You will not have to worry about a dove in your bedroom, the tiger in your tank, or the giant in your toilet bowl. The revolution will not go better with coke. The revolution will not fight germs that may cause bad breath. The revolution will put you in the driver's seat. The revolution will not be televised, will not be televised, will not be televised, will not be televised. The revolution will be no rerun, brothers. The revolution will be live. You're on 3CR with Annie, and uh, as I said, we've got uh, Jonathan on the line who's going to talk to us about what's going on in Deeming Deeming Creek up in Brisbane. G'day, Jonathan. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, the main First Nations organisers weren't available this morning. so That's right. um, Yeah, um, but yeah, I'm coming at you from Yugger and Turbul country up here in Brisbane. Yeah, thank you very much for taking some time. And in fact, you're a, a Brisbane uh, councillor, aren't you? Yeah, I'm a Green City councillor up here in Brisbane. So the the area where this development's happening is a, a little outside Brisbane's local government area. It's in the sat- satellite town of Ipswich and just on Ipswich's southern boundary. Yeah, and... Uh, it, I mean, looking at the background to this particular dispute, it, it's almost like a uh, a map of uh, the uh, Australian Badlands. <laughs> really, uh, you know, the the ultimate. Uh, it's got all the elements of the things that have not been resolved in uh, colonial white Australia, isn't it? Doesn't yeah. it? Yeah, big time. There's, there's a long, complex history to it, but the the short version is that. This site, Deeping Creek, was used as an Aboriginal mission in the late 1800s and early 1900s, where First Nations people from across southeast Queensland were forcibly round up and 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 made to live there and, and work there without fair pay. So there's a, a history of slavery and forced relocations, dispossession of land, um, significantly that this was one of the first missions in all of Queensland. So people were rounded up to Deeping Creek and then later moved on to other missions and, and stations. So also a lot of history of um, child removals and um, connections to stolen generations, etc. So, yeah, there's, there's that long history of this site being used as a mission. And then um, on top of that, it's 
has other cultural significance as a major waterway that connects to the Brisbane River. Um, and so there have been quite a few attempts in the past to develop the site. Back in the, I think it was the 80s, there was a attempt to turn the whole thing into a giant golf course. And oh, at oh. that time, the community pushed back and there, was, there were big protests and that resulted in a very small part of the site being protected on the state heritage register. But uh, local mob are concerned that the area that's been mapped as state heritage is, is only a small proportion of the, the whole site. Um, and crucially, there are concerns that the area which was mapped as the, the cemetery from the mission doesn't include all the areas where bodies have been buried. So there are very credible um, concerns that there are unmarked graves and, and human remains across the site that haven't been mapped by the government and, and haven't been protected. Also, uh, there is uh, thoughts that it was actually a massacre site as well. That's right. There are oral histories highlighting that um, a massacre, perhaps involving children, also happened on the site. Um, lots of debate, nowhere near enough government attention given to examining these claims and, and verifying them. And, of course, the the site has now been parceled up and, and sold off to various property developers who have a very strong profit interest in, in discouraging and delegitimising any any investigation into those those oral histories. So, um, yeah, a, a couple of years ago, the uh, after receiving all the approvals from State Government Council, the developers were about to start building on the Deebing Creek site. And at that moment, First Nations people and their allies decided to start an occupation. And they've been occupying that site just south of Ipswich for three plus years now. And it's quite phenomenal when you think about it as a land rights response to unsustainable suburban sprawl development for for mob to be out there on country, living on site, reconnecting with land, restoring the land. They've been planting both farms and and growing food, but also restoring the bushland with planting native species. Um, It's really a phenomenal space of cultural renewal. And and they've successfully kept the developers at bay um, in the areas where they've set up their their um, land defender camps, uh, but just on Wednesday afternoon, developers started clearing the forest a couple about a kilometre to the south of the camp, and that's that's when things sort of heated up this week. Yeah, it's um, interesting because, uh, as I said, uh, this is has all the hallmarks of every part of these kind of developments. Uh, there's a uh, the um, the the developer in this particular case, it's uh, Stock. What's their name? Stocklands is one Stocklands, of the Stocklands, the one that yeah. in particular is has bringing in uh, bulldozers in this particular place, uh, are talking about how they've got uh, a um, a plan and they've uh, spoken to various. Uh, um, uh, communities, uh, uh, indigenous communities around there, and they've got uh, them to sign on the dotted line and all that kind of stuff. But there's uh, more to this, isn't there, um, in regards to uh, uh, the issue of uh, the native title framework. Uh, indigenous people using this framework have no right to actually stop this kind of development, do they? Yeah, and, and I'm mindful as a non-Indigenous person of not wanting to speak 
for people, but what people on the ground have been saying for a long time is that the entire, entire Native Title Framework is broken, it turns people against each other, uh, and crucially, it doesn't give them veto power over developments like this. So sometimes families feel pressured or, or forced into signing onto a cultural heritage management plan so that they can at least have some influence over the protection of the most significant parts of a site. But signing a cultural heritage management plan doesn't mean that they're supporting the development or or, or approving what's going on. Um, and so in this case, everyone connected to the site, um, not just the um, owners of that particular area of Ipswich, but all the other families whose ancestors were taken from different parts of southeast Queensland and, and imprisoned there, all of those different family groups have said that they don't want these developments to go ahead. There's literally can't find a single First Nations person who thinks this is a good idea, and yet the current framework gives them no power to say no to that development. And so the developers get their approvals from the state government and council, and they start bulldozing trees, and it's all justified in the name of progress. Yeah, it's very stark, isn't it? Because, uh, uh, you know, it's all very well to say that, uh, oh, yeah, we're hearing your voice and uh, all this sort of stuff. But in actual fact, this is a stark reminder that there's a a completely different understanding of uh, uh, care to country and responsibility to country and uh, Western colonial capitalists... uh, enshrining of develop, uh, progress and development is being... Yeah. Hello? Yeah, that, that, that's right. And uh, a real sort of... You know, there is a housing crisis at the moment, and, and yeah. it's all justified in the name of creating more housing. But even, even that justification is really spurious because this is a, a for-profit development. It doesn't include any public housing or community housing. This is really just about developers making as much money as they can. Um, but it's also a terrible location for housing because this is right beyond the city outskirts in, in the bush. It's not connected to public transport services. It's a long drive from schools and community facilities and shops and job opportunities. So the developers are essentially setting up a, a, a situation where future residents are going to have to drive long distances and spend a lot of money on petrol or whatever to, to move around. Um, and so the developers don't pay their fair share towards infrastructure or community facilities, and then they claim to be building housing, but uh, they're not providing any of the facilities that make a neighbourhood work and, and are in, in doing so just contributing to the broader failure in urban planning in Australian cities. So, it's really divisive, isn't it? It's a, it's the, it's just really pushing the pressure points in uh, Australian society. Uh, uh, poor whites against uh, indigenous people, uh, um, you know, developers, and they're all just gleefully eating the the pie while everyone mm. else is being left with nothing. Yeah, that's right. And and as as one elder pointed out to me, the like. The significance of this area in, environmentally as well is is really high. Like this is um, prime koala habitat. It's a, a koala co- corridor. They've seen echidnas and kangaroos, etc., on the site. There's a lot of wildlife there. Um, but this elder was saying that the um, the we, we should be able to build housing without fully clearing the forest. Like if if there is a need to create more housing in certain areas. It shouldn't, it shouldn't require wholesale bulldozing. 
stands in of, of entire stands of vegetation, as we've seen up, up at Stephen Creek. Yeah, um, the, the, but, uh, there was a um, uh, one of the Greens um, representatives in state parliament in Queensland actually caused an uproar, didn't she? Yeah, Amy McMahon was used her moment in Parliament well yesterday, and she got herself kicked out. But I think did a good job of raising the issue um, and interrupted proceedings, and was talking about Deeping Creek and both the environmental impacts, but also the the land rights implication. And I think a lot of people across southeast Queensland are increasingly concerned about this development, but maybe people still don't quite ex- realise how significant it is because you know. Private development projects happen all the time and they always receive community objections and most of the time the government just rolls over them. But on this rare occasion, the community, have they've put in their submissions and they've been ignored, but then instead of saying, oh, well, it's been approved, I guess there's nothing we can do, the mob have stepped up and they've, they're protecting the site and they're living on country and, and they're defending the land with their bodies. And I think that's... I, I can't think of too many similar examples... In, in terms of resisting suburban sprawl development and, and protecting sacred sites here in southeast Queensland. Um, and, and the fact that the occupation has lasted for three-plus years now and they still haven't been able to clear, clear the forest closer to the main mission site is, is really inspiring. Um, what's going to happen now? There was a, a, a smoking ceremony yesterday which stopped the um, bulldozers um, and um, the the death of the trees is high, highly significant too. Um, the the idea that trees aren't living, and this has been pointed out by the First Nations people who are trying to hold the line here, um, this is a, a monumental uh, death uh, when the old trees are gone. Yeah, I'll um I'll read from from one of the statements that the the group put out because I don't I don't want to speak for them too much but they they said that um their their bulldozers have nothing on culture over the past few days protectors have been engaged in ceremony in the path of the bulldozers stopping work our ancestors are are here they deserve to come home and they deserve to do that with cultural integrity these trees are life they maintain life and then they say there are so many reasons to protect Deeping Creek Come stand with us. Let's keep the fire burning. Thanks. So, yeah, this, yeah, as you say, this is a, this is really significant to people, um, and the the fact that um, the the crew were willing to walk onto that site literally while the bulldozers were there, and and the site operators had to shut down work for the day and send their workers home, um, and then the group moved through the site and held a smoking ceremony. It was really very powerful and um, and I think like probably really put the wind up the developers because they they maybe didn't expect that there would be that kind of resistance which was both very peaceful and respectful but also really strong and, and effective. Thanks for talking to us this morning, Jonathan. Thank you. Um, people can follow the Deeping Creek Sovereignty page on Facebook for further updates. You're listening to 3CR Radio. A weak solidarity briggy team listener when workers and working families were dancing in the streets celebrating the first socialist budget in a decade. 
enjoying the promised increase in real wages and $275 decrease in power bills. Even more excited when they realised the promises would be delivered in as soon as the next decade, as long as the stars align and the cards fall the right way and the, the right horse wins and big economic guru Jim Chalmers Capital and big supremo Anthony Albing Uzi's fingers crossed achieve their wishes showing what an exact science is capitalist economics. Yes, real wages will rise sometime in the mists of time, and obviously the massive increase in power bills will be $275 less than they would otherwise massively increase. And as the economy celebrated the budget next day by zooming inflation up 7.5%, and we were promised massive increases in just everything, well, except wages, many of those families may as well keep dancing in the streets because that's where they'll be living for the foreseeable. But inflation sadly hurts all of us. For instance, the big retailers said they fear they will have to pass rising costs on to customers, like as if they wouldn't. The poor great energy behemoths who have no choice but to send our bills soaring were highly critical of two state supremos whose recklessness could upset the balance of the market, that invisible force that benefits us all. Our very own, the pejorative Dan, and South Trubluwazi's Peter Malinoscu Markets, both threatening to re-establish state-owned energy businesses they claim will lower prices. Indeed, so iconoclastic, they denounced the privatisation of their public assets as increasing prices and being at the root of the current problem. Any wonder the benevolent behemoths who brought us the huge benefits of private sector efficiency and lower prices, imagine how much higher our bills would be if it wasn't for that efficiency, that benevolence. Indeed, Malinos Q Markets went so far in his sacrilegious rubbish, he praised Western True Blue Aussie for being smart and keeping its electricity assets under government ownership, with no stronger proof than much lower bills. To make matters worse, when the architect of bringing us all these advantages, former state supremo Jeff Footinmouth, accused the pejorative Dan of being a dangerous socialist who will return Victoria to being a rust bucket state, oh, if only this, no, if only, one long-haired commie commentator, rather than praising Jeff's deep insight, said it will return us to being able to afford to pay our bills. What ingratitude. And to make matters worse worse, the True the Energy Regulator reckons the network companies have ripped us off to the tune of $10 billion, a slur on corporations just trying to squeeze a little profit out of us while carrying out their dedication to service and community responsibility, showing the regulator has no idea what it's talking about other than the expert academic report its 10 billion ripoff was based on. And anyway, if there was a ripoff, what was the regulator doing? See, it's the regulator's fault. The poor energy behemoths are but innocent victims of their own greed, uh, sorry, uh, own dedication. They haven't got time to see if they're ripping off or not. Yet the usual suspect, long-haired commie greenies, reckon that instead of agreeing to huge increases, government should be cutting out the rorts. How distressing for this altruistic industry. 
so distressed, one of our very favourite altruists, Santosas the Prophet Supremo Kevin Gallagher cash registers, warned Anthony and Jim their threat of a regulatory crackdown to rein in the surging prices will backfire by acting as a break on new investment needed to increase supply. Then he said something quite amazing, even by his stroke their lofty standards. Government intervention, Kevin alerted, would kill investment, send prices through the roof. The amazing thing is he said that last bit without laughing. Spectacular self-control. And ultimately, energy and manufacturing would have to be propped up with government subsidies. Don't know why that last bit worries him. Isn't that the status quo? In fact, Kev has been most generous in giving us the benefit of his wisdom, assuring us high gas prices can't be blamed for manufacturers paying high prices, stressing that fossils give us security, and he's correct, they certainly give us the secure knowledge that the planet is in a little bit of trouble. Sorry we can't enlighten ourselves on that high prices can't be blamed for high prices economic wisdom other than to say Kev said it, so it must be true. Oh, and Kev also told us the exciting news that Santosas the Prophets had recorded record sales. Soaring gas prices fuel record sales, the headline read. See, we'll all be better off, especially if we don't use any electricity or gas. But poor Kev was forced to take the evil, well, no, not evil, Troubler was he workers' union, a good union to court for nasty cartoons the workers have distributed online over a long, long industrial dispute at one plant in which the workers claim Santos Us is dragging out negotiations. Goodness me, Kev and the team have more on their minds than negotiating with greedy workers. The, the nasty cartoons show Kev sitting on a toilet under a banner, Santos Us, High human relations think tank. What disrespect for so generous a man. Given the budget has assumed these prices will go through the roof, we asked Jim Chalmers Capital how he assumed that. The most reliable source of all, the energy giants told us they will have to raise their prices through the roof. Are your thoughts, Kev? Using thoughts fairly loosely. Uh, yes, well, the government told us our prices will have to go through the roof. Uh, but Trubler was he is rich in fossils. Our energy should be really cheap, destroying the planet very cheaply. That argument shows you have no concept of how the market operates. Competition policy on the level playing field of world's best practice. Uh, Jim, a man, well, or man or woman, cannot interfere with market forces. Kevin, the knowledgeable experts, including caring business class party supremo and would-be big supremo, Constable Peter Duffer, do inform us the real cause of soaring prices is renewables. Obviously, the massive price of wind and sun. And here, South Trublowazi supremo Peter Malinos Q. Markets revealed his iconoclastic ignorance yet again, declaring the only way to lower the cost of fossil energy is renewables. Kevin and Constable Duffer must shake their heads in disbelief at such ignorance. And Kevin and Constable Duffer just hate ignorance.
like ignorant socialists, ignorant lazy avaricious workers, ignorant evil unions, having excited us with the promise of the promised higher wages sometime in the next millennium, if the stars align, the socialists have upset caring employers by introducing a caring business class relations bill. Caring employers tell us will tilt the balance far too far in favour of the evil unions. Interesting that, if as they claim there is no such thing as class struggle, class difference, then, then what's the balance all about? Anyway, tilt for, as we know, as evil unions know, the balance has been just perfect, equal for decades, and can't be blamed for little problems caring employers lose so much sleep over, like slow wages growth alongside record profits. See perfect balance. The reduction in real wages matches, well, no, allows the increase in record profits to be so much more increase. In fact, if we think about it, that's an argument for lowering real wages even more. Win-win. Thus, the sundry chambers of profits predict allowing workers to bargain with caring employers across an industry, for instance, will give evil unions so much more reckless power and see jobs slashed. At a time of economic uncertainty. Why do these things always occur at a time of economic uncertainty? The, the socialist government and the evil unions should know better. Caring business class relations minister Tony Bark Worsthan said the economy destroying legislation was part of the government's promise to increase wages. Two days after Jim told us wages would not rise for eons, so obviously the new legislation will take a while to have an effect. Although given the caring employers have for decades expressed their concern over slow wages growth, surely they should be excited at the possibility that real wages may increase, rather than calling for the smelling salts. Surely. It's always important to ruminate on the considered views of our most important and caring people, like True Blue Aussie's filthiest rich of the filthy rich, Gina's views on sports sponsorship. It is unnecessary for sports organisations to be used as a vehicle for social or political causes. There are more targeted and genuine ways to progress social or political causes without virtue signalling or for self-publicity. Uh, then, Gina, why did you want the True Blue Aussie netball team to have your name all over their uniforms? Oh, well, obviously for self-publicity and your relentless campaign against the resource profits tax, that was a genuine way to progress a very important social cause. It was the socialist government which made it political. Uh, how? By threatening to tax us. The problem started, as we know, when a young Indigenous player refused to wear Gina's self-publicity, all because Gina's dad, Lang, said a few things she didn't like. When all he said was, Indigenous people should be sterilised and bred out of civilization, probably because they were laying claim to the land which was his source of extreme wealth. Breed them out. And a few considered thoughts on why they should be bred out, have no right to exist, no right to be on this planet, let alone this country, Lang's country. Quite properly, Gina refused to say she disagreed with her dad. How dare they ask Gina to renounce her own father's words, her dear old dad. And anyway, if Lang had got his way, the young Indigenous player wouldn't be here to cause all this fuss. Thus, we have the old Lang advocating Indigenous people stop breeding while he then bred Gina. Life's so fair, isn't it? Like 
Remember when a, sorry, a copper murdered a young indigenous bloke on Palm Island, the only person who ever saw the inside of a jail was an indigenous protester. Real justice. And now it's possible in this Parliament House alleged rape case, the only person who might end up being punished over and above is the young woman for expressing her distress in an interview outside the court. Top marks to the defence team for their compassion and sense of justice. Finally, Constable Duffer says we must have an intelligent conversation, an intelligent, you know, like conversation, about Troubloisi going nuclear, establishing a nuclear energy industry, which obviously, unlike the massive costs of wind and sun, would contribute to lowering those soaring energy bills and make the planet all that much safer after a couple of hundred thousand years. But what humility. An intelligent, you know, like conversation, showing Pete obviously doesn't want to be involved. Good morning. Hi, my name is Lex Wharton and I listen to 3CR and I hope you do too. I hope that you could support 3CR in its radiothon because 3CR supports the fight for communities and support in all areas of struggles. So please listen to 3CR. And you're back with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast and we've got Don Sutherland on the line. G'day, Don, how are you? I'm pretty good, thanks, Annie, and g'day to you and all your listeners. Yeah, now, Don, you're the man uh, who's got his eye on uh, what's been happening and you're particularly interested in the annual wage review. But, of course, behind the uh, annual wage review is all this uh, mucking around at the Reserve Bank and uh, this mini-budget that we've just had. Can you give us some idea of how you see it uh, uh, interacting? Yes, well, um, uh, I think what this budget does is uh, emphasise how uh, the government's uh, management of the economy, especially through the budget, but in other ways, interacts with the other uh, really important institutions that are also involved in management of the economy, keeping in mind that it's a capitalist economy uh, and it's a profit system economy. That's because it is a capitalist system. Uh, a capitalist system. So, uh, and, and those other uh, institutions are, of course, uh, the Fair Work Commission itself and, of course, the Reserve Bank. And there are others, but they're the three major ones that this budget brings into focus. That is the interaction between what government does through its budget, the... Uh, uh, what happens to wages through wage fixing, both enterprise bargaining, multi-enterprise bargaining, and the annual wage review. And then thirdly, how the Reserve Bank is actually dictating both of those things. Um, you're quite correct to say that this is actually a, you know, a, a mini-budget, or I would call it a review budget. And it's necessary because uh, from the point of view of the employing class they needed a new government that would bring a much higher degree of management competence to the management of the economy. And I think probably from their point of view, there is a lot more coherence and competence from their point of view in this budget. It's funny that you should say that because I've listened to a variety of different 
uh, people who have been going through the, the mini budget. And uh, one of the people actually said, uh, now that the adults are back in charge. Yes. Uh, well, that's a, you know, maybe a populist way of putting it. Um, now, that is not to say that just because they are more competent that we are getting a different mode, a better, mo- a better mode of economic management uh, from the point of view of the majority. And I think this, what this first budget is actually assert uh, that the Albanese government will be uh, managing the economy according to neoliberal principles, but with some laborist characteristics. And that's why, I'm, you know, <laughs> maybe I shall patent this, but I'm <laughs> calling it neoliberalism because it retains most of the features of the neoliberal form of managing capitalist societies. Uh, However, it does emphasise some aspects that can be traced through the history of light-on-the-hill type labourism. Well, it's actually uh, a very clever um, alliteration, really, because that's exactly how they seem to see themselves. Um, because, I, I, as I said, I've listened to a variety of different sort of analysis of the budget, and um, a particular one that was a collection of uh, uh, Labor uh, progressive, uh, call them think tanks, right? And um, one of the mantras that is co- constantly being uh, talked about is uh, at the most vulnerable in the community, taking into account the most vulnerable in the community. You know what I mean? So it's like it's like uh, neoliberalism with a uh, blanket, a horse blanket called uh, the most vulnerable in the community. <laughs> and I think the weasel words in that are taking into account. In other words, they're not in they're not in the forefront of concerns, yeah. but they're sort of like the postscript to the main game, which is to maintain and protect profit taking at a level that is necessary for a healthier capitalism than what we have. And, and not to the demean, that, and not to demean them, but it's also underlining is using intelligence to get positive outcomes without requiring money. Well, not quite. We'll come back to another way. Uh, that in another way, with some other weasel words that are coming out of neoliberalism, as now being practiced by the Albanese government. Um, the the best evidence, the starting point for understanding that neoliberalism is alive and well, albeit in a modified form, comes from Albanese's own mouth. Uh, just a few days before the budget, when he was discussing it on Western Australian radio, he said, he said, it's important that fiscal policy, that is essentially the budget, it is important that fiscal policy, the budget policy, work with the context, within the context of t- 
tightening of monetary policy by central banks. Mm. We must work with it rather than against it. Yep. That's what he said. Now, that means, that is an admission that the Reserve Bank, an unelected board, dictates to, and this is acceptable to the government, dictates to an elected government how it should manage the economy. Well, you know, that's the orthodoxy, though. That's the orthodoxy that's been... um uh, come to believe uh, to be uh, the air we breathe. It's like a given. That is the neoliberal uh, success orthodoxy for sure. That's it. And Labor, led by Albanese, is accepting that. And I say that with one, just one proviso. It is the parliamentary Labor Party that has locked it in, itself into a modified, slightly modified, neoliberal approach to management. The unknown question is how much members of the Labor Party are willing to accept that and for how long. And the signs are not good. The signs are that the membership of the Labor Party itself is willing to be comfortable with, rather than critical of, neoliberalism. What I call neoliberalism, now painted it. Um, now that means that, for example, and there are many, that new levels of poverty, rising poverty, are not a priority. It's something... As you said, it's something that is a little bit like an afterthought. It's not a priority. And the new levels of poverty were confirmed in the week before the budget by the latest research produced in a joint project between ACOS, the Australian Council of Social Services, and the University of New South Wales uh, Social uh, Research Network uh, uh, Unit. So... There it is. That's not the priority. Uh, Chalmers, the Treasurer, himself said, inflation is the great influencer. Well, what, flow, what flows from that in the budget are the forecasts about wages. It, uh, uh, the forecasts, which are prepared by Treasury, right, they, they do all the gut, the, the, the gut work of the budget, if you like, the forecasts have wages marginally getting above inflation in, on, on average, uh, at the earliest in 18 months or so. Now, that is the forecast. That is the intent, if you like, the preference of the government. Um, now, that means that the government is accepting the mantra that wage increases drive inflation. Yeah, demonstrably, right. there's no evidence for yeah, that. Yeah, I was going to say. I mean, why why are profits so sacrosanct, and everybody else's lives are allowed to go down the drain? What is this? We are we live in a profit system. We live in a profit system, and if we continue to live in a profit system, uh, the role of government. There are lots and lots of problems and contradictions 
in a profit system. Not all employers make the same level of profit or the same and or the same rate of profit, and they have to be rescued from time to time. Now, the role of government is to help that to intervene against the the pure operation of the market. Uh, there's never been such a thing, actually. But the role of government is to govern in such a way that all of those problems and contradictions get sorted out. Yeah, so yeah, within yeah. the employing class, you have a massive you know, uh, contradiction that so many of them are desperate not for not... Uh, to not sort of, to only pretend that climate change is happening and do as little as possible about it, but there's another big part of the employing class who who do acknowledge that it's real and want and see great opportunity for future profit taking in it. Now, having a labour government that supports that and that's neoliberalism supports that is very important, and that's where the question of competence comes in from the employer's point of view. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll just remind listeners that we're talking to Don Sutherland and uh, we're looking at uh, the interaction of budget and other mechanisms uh, within our society uh, as to our future economic situation. It's funny you should say this. Two things occur to me. Uh, One of them on this particular subject is that... um, you know how there was a news report about rorts in Medicare, rorts in Medicare, and it's it's all down to uh, uh, greedy doctors, blah, 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 and uh, whatever. But uh, it struck me as a, a really interesting publicity campaign because if you look at rorts, then you don't look at the uh, outsourcing and privatisation of our healthcare system and huge amounts of money that are systemically going into private hands which is extremely important sort of issue when it comes to uh, governments and how government services and how that feeds into people's well-being, et cetera, et cetera. And, um, and uh, it, it's, uh, there's so many things that are being um, – and it's the same thing about this message about inflation, uh, that it's uh, apparently uh, – Workers who want properly pa- uh, proper payment within the profit system uh, for their for their work and how unreasonable it is. But of course, that's a load of bunkum. The, the um, well, there's a sense in which it's true, and that is, if there is an across the board increase in wages, that in the first instance is going to create downward pressure on profits. That's what it eats into profits. Now, yeah. uh, so so that is true. Now the question is, you know, how does how does the management of the system deal with that? Well, the employers will demand that the government that oversees and manages the system, that is, deals with its contradictions, in some way put a halt to it, slow it down or restrict it to just, say, uh, 10% of the working class so that the increases only flow flow to, you know, the significant increases above the rate of inflation deliberately only flow to a minority of the working class, thus enhancing wages, competition, worker versus worker. That becomes a key factor, and that is a big feature of enterprise bargaining in the broken rules of the Fair Work Act, which is not 
going to be changed significantly. There will be fine-tuning of it. Uh, and that's really, when we talk about the IR changes that are in front of us, that's really what's going on. Uh, I may be wrong about that, but that's my reading of it so far. Um, so it, one of the things that Chalmers said that is true is that uh, the, 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 there, is, there is the likelihood increasing every day of a global recession. And so it is true that a go any government has a choice to make. Will it, will it govern to, pre to prevent or reduce the impact of a recession in preference to the majority of the population? Or will it do so for the minority? And at the present time, what this first mini-budget, as you called it, or review budget, uh, which is the language I'm... What it is indicating is that the primary... That the first priority for the new government is to deal with the influence of recession in other parts of the world in favour of the ruling class. And in that sense, it's not much different than what an LNP government would do. Not yeah. much different. It well, is there is there was some discussion about the idea of the annual wage review actually having some influence on the uh, the low uh, rates of pay and um, the increase in uh, cost of living. Is there yes, any well, legs there? Yes. Well, the annual wage review starts. Um, you know, with the announcement of the schedule for the review, it starts in about a month's time, thereabouts, you know, give or take a week or two. Now, how things unfold, especially in the new year, leading up to the first substantive regular budget... Uh, yeah, in May, unfolds. isn't it? The first question is, is how fair Dinkum union movement will be in leading a big wage increase push, or will it succumb to uh, a variation of wage increases might cause inflation and be problematic? Will they succumb? Well, that's or interesting. You should say more? that. Well, they're running a campaign, and they've been um, uh, they've been running a campaign, and they've had uh, Zoom meetings around it. Uh, around the notion that uh, workers are not to blame for inflation and they yes. have been arming their delegates with information yes. around this. Yes. Now, the, the, the flow-on of that, the logic of that, is that the annual wage review should start with an ACTU claim on behalf of all workers, whether they're members or unions or not, and that's very important that it's like that, uh, that is above the cost of living projections. And that, and it should seek to include a catch-up element for that which has been lost. Hmm. Now, whether or not it does, we will, we will know. We will know soon. Now, the second question is, will the government as it did when it was in opposition just before the election with the most recent annual wage review, will it advocate for 
uh, an increase that matches the increases in the cost of living. Now, that's what it did beforehand, uh, before, before in the context of the election. Will it do so as a government? And all the indicators from this budget is that it will not. Mm. It will not continue in government with the same willingness to support low-income workers in the annual wage review that it did beforehand. Now, all of this, what this amounts to, is a really big question. How should unions and um, uh, unemployed organisations, pensioner activist groups and anti-poverty organisations respond to this neoliberal management of the system? The first thing to do is they've got to work out what the hell is actually going on and work it out together mm. rather than separately. Yep, yep. yep. The co- of course there must be, each one of those organisations will do their lobbying and maybe other campaigning in their own right uh, uh, through their own channels and so on. But will that be enough? Is there a case for them working out an alternative economic management proposal? years ago called a People's Economic Program or an Alternative Economic Program or something of that nature, and not just pursue the elements of that individually, uh, but also collectively. Yeah, well, it does... Once again, in the Australian context, there is no sign of that and there is no single organisation that wants to bring it together and develop a campaign that reflects the needs of the working class generally. There's no sign of that in Australia at the moment, although it's a big deal in many other parts of the world. Oh, well, there look, what's, happen- look, what, look what's happening in England. It's emerging in England. After we were, uh, they were basically where we were a year, a year or so ago, and that is shifting, and they haven't got on top of it entirely. No. But they're getting there. Yeah, yeah. They're that's making a- progress. Yeah, but... Um, so, it's, it, it leads you to think system change, not, um, you know, like then I, I listen, I mean, we've got hardly any time to go, but I listened to this whole um, webinar around uh, the environment and uh, it was uh, Ross uh, Garno and uh, he's just put out a book and the whole conversation and Tim Flannery and, I mean, you know, it's, I'm, I'm not having a go at them. It's just the whole context of that discussion about the environment was all about the economy and I know that Roscano is an economist but it was endlessly the economy the economy, the economy and I'm thinking you know actually it's the environment stupid you know it's like it's the community stupid well um, the uh, of course uh, the economy doesn't actually include the environment I mean, every commodity... No, but it should be the other way around. The environment includes the economy. Well, the point I'm making is that every single commodity that we depend on day-to-day, including cash in hand, originates from nature. Yeah. That's its source. Yeah. Everyone, everything. The clothes you wear, the food you eat, the water you drink, if you're holding paper cash in your hand, the ingredients of all of that, originate in nature. And so 
when they talk about it. Now, someone like Garno, and um, uh, I, I wish I had I listened to that, actually. I missed it. But someone like Garno, who I have read, I haven't read his new book, but the one before that I have. Now, Garno is a particularly important... Um, uh, uh, influencer. Intellectual. intellectual <laughs> He's an influencer. Writes, writes, <laughs> very influential, who writes really well to help governments better modernise the management of the capitalist system. Yeah. He, he is all about its perpetuation, the perpetuation of the rate of exploitation. That's right. That's what I, That was level, what was giving me the shits, I'll have to say. The rate of profit. <laughs> That's what it's all about. And so when he talks, as he does, really articulately about the severity of the problem of climate change, and he has done for, you know, 15 or 20 years. He is talking about how it needs to be dealt with so that the system perpetuates its exploitation of people. Anyway, I've taken you. I've taken you off the uh, the task, um, and we've only got uh, two minutes to go. So I'll, we, we have to uh, pick this up in a, in a, a short time uh, and finish this discussion. Maybe we'll we'll talk later when the uh, a bit more about this uh, whole interaction of the different areas because. Uh, I mean, the uh, central bank hasn't always had a very uh, glorious history, even though it's the one that's supposed to have its uh, hand on the tiller. But anyway. They are a bunch of rogues, unelected, but they are dictating how an elected government should manage the system. Yeah. And it is what their prescription, their prescription is entirely servant to uh, the interaction between the big producing multinational corporations and the finance corporations. Mm. Those two, they're not separate things. Those big, most powerful elements of modern capitalism, they interact with each other. And the Reserve Bank's loyalty is to the enhancement of their profit-taking and power in societies. Well, we have to finish. That, that is such a big thing that you just said. We have to finish and we'll talk again. Don, thank you very much for talking to us let's, this morning. Let's keep digging in beneath the surface. Yeah, that's right. And that was Don Sutherland and we really are have to get out of the studio because Asia Pacific Currents is coming up. Uh, we uh, had uh, some information about the uh, Palestine film uh, Palestinian uh, Film Festival. We went to deeming protectors uh, under threat in Brisbane, near Brisbane, I- Ipswich. This is the week that was, and Don Sutherland, as I said, upcoming up next is Asia Pacific Currents. We'll go out with a little bit of Kutcher Edwards. <laughs> You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.